Welcome to the Same Side Selling Podcast, dedicated to modern sales and marketing, innovation, and leadership. Here's your host, Ian Altman. Hey, it's Ian Altman. We're joined this week by Tom Williams. Tom's the author of The Seller's Challenge, a book that's really aligned well with Same Side Selling. We're going to talk about the biggest mistake sellers make when it comes to dealing with buyers. We'll discuss what leads to your product or service being seen as a commodity versus high value. How you can include the right stakeholders in your discussions, the biggest fail when it comes to sellers, as well as the biggest skill that most people are missing. You're going to learn a ton from Tom Williams. Tom, hey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks again. Glad to be with you today. Can you start by sharing something surprising about you that our audience may not know? Sure. Um, I think the, probably the audience probably doesn't know that I'm a rabid uh, college football fan. I've been following I follow college football uh, year round. Uh, it never stops. I spend as much time, uh, probably an hour a day, uh, on college football, checking uh, all the different. Uh, uh, sources that you can get like, uh, like scout and rivals.com. Uh, I follow Arizona state, you know, football and several other teams. So yeah, it's kind of a religion with me and uh, been a hobby and a religion for a long time. Well, it's funny. Our, our son is an incoming Buckeye at, at the Ohio state university. And notice I had to say the Ohio state university. They get very upset if you just call it Ohio state. Right. Right. <laughs> well, he, well, he shows a good school. Yeah, well, you know what? It's is uh, and people say, "Oh, is he going there for sports?" I said, "Well, kind of. He's an aerospace engineering student, so um, I got a feeling he might miss some of the games with his academic schedule." But we'll see how it goes. Absolutely, absolutely. So, though I'm sure we have listeners who are thinking, "Hey, I wonder if Ian and Tom can spend a half hour just talking about college football." I want to tap into your expertise. And uh, and a lot of it having to do with what you cover in your book, The Seller's Challenge. What's the biggest mistake or misconception that you feel that people have when it comes to working with buyers or procurement? Great question. I think uh, I think Ian probably the one I would answer the way I'd answer that is that um, I think most sellers believe that all procurement wants to do is beat them down on price. That the only thing they're concerned about uh, is the lowest price that they can get, and I don't think they really understand. Uh, the procurement mentality uh, and what the procurement procurement's job is all about. So, so what have what have you found? But let's let's build on that because I agree with you completely, and I also know that thirty percent of our audience right now is saying, "Oh, that's not true." My buyers they only care about price. So, so you know, build on that a little bit for me. Sure. Well, one of the things that uh, is interesting, one of the things that we shared in the book was a uh, was a matrix where you plot impact on financial results, you know, versus supply risk. And what you end up with is four quadrants. And the far two left quadrants are all about a pricing strategy and the two right quadrants are all about value. So let me give you an example. If you have, a, if you're a seller that has a, what I call a routine product, so it's got a low supply risk for the buyer and it's got a low risk, a low impact on their financial results, you're a routine item and they're going to, they're going to contract that out. They're going to do blanket POs and they're going to go for lowest price because that's what makes sense to them. If you have a, a low supply risk, but a high impact on their financial result, 
that's what I call a leverage item. It's, that's where you see typically competitive bidding, RFPs, reverse auctions, those types of things. So there, it's all about a pricing strategy from your, your organization's point of view. If you get over on the right-hand side of that quadrant where you've got a high supply risk risk and a low, uh, low impact on their financial risk, that's a bottleneck item. That's, a, that's an item that uh, they need, and they need to make sure they've got an assured supply uh, they'll have one or two backups if you can't provide, uh, but generally you can command a little bit higher price. Where the real home run is to have a product or service that has a high supply risk and has high high impact uh, for the buyer on financial risk. And that's a strategic sure. item. That's you typically where you have patents and or you're first in, in market. Uh, we've got a very strong differentiated uh, position. And that's where you can create relationships. And there, you know, price, price will always be important. It's less important in that, in that quadrant than any place else. So, sure. I ask, so I ask sellers all the time, where are you in the quadrant? And where are you in to start with? Because that'll give you a real good idea of the mentality of how procurement's going to work with you. And, and Tom, just define supply risks in, in terms that everyone can understand. Well, supply risk to me is, is, um, is really – the ability of the of this of the of the vendor to be able to supply the product, you know, on time, good quality, etc. So think about things like that can stop that, where uh, you have uh, employer strikes, you have uh, you know untoward events like tsunamis, things like that that could interrupt production, um, you know, low capacity uh, that are uh, you know have very high capacity where a vendor says, I can't supply you in the quantities that need it. Those types of things are very important to procurement. They want the right product at the right time, you know, at the right price for the right person. And my guess, if I understand this correctly, Tom, is that when it comes to supply risk for services, it's less about availability and more, is this someone we feel can actually execute and deliver what we need? Exactly, Ann. You, you, You nailed it right in the head. Yeah. So, so in terms of on a product side, it might be, can they deliver the right quality of what we need when we need it and translate that to services? The right quality is, look, am I getting the right talent who can actually execute and implement this? I remember in a, um, in, in my prior business, we had a federal agency that contacted us about helping on a project. And we said, yeah, we can do this thing. Fixed price. It's going to be 25 grand. And they said, well, how many hours is it going to take? And I was much younger than I am and more naive then. And I said, well, it'll take about so many hours. And the government said, well, that's ridiculous. Your rates are too high. We can't do that. So they contracted with someone else. Our, our rate at that point was probably about $150 an hour. And they contracted with somebody for $60 an hour. Well, Fast forward a year and a half, they had spent $400,000 with this other vendor to try and solve this problem. Finally, the government got fed up, went to them and said, well, see if you can subcontract to these guys. They came to me and said, what will it cost? And I said, well, it's going to cost $50,000 to do it. And they said, right. well, I thought you said it was twenty five. It was. Maybe we underestimated. But, I, but you don't have to pay us if we don't deliver. And the funny part is my team delivered this thing very rapidly because over that time we developed additional tools. My guy said, okay, it's done. Should we deliver it? I said, no, no, hold on to it for a few weeks because this isn't like, and, but the thing is it wasn't so much opportunistic as much as it was, look, I know what it's worth. It's still a bargain for everybody. And, but it just shows that notion of 
if somebody was truly just focused on the price. Now, today, I would say, well, I don't know how many hours it's going to take, and we don't bill by the hour. Here's what it's going to cost to actually execute, and if we don't deliver, you don't pay us, and we probably would have won. Instead, I gave information that was irrelevant to them and just confused the whole issue and made it about price or made it about rate. Sure. You allowed them to do the math, right? Yeah. And, and the reality is it doesn't matter. It's, you know, in most cases, in fact, um, we talked about this in same side selling is look, you're either focusing on selling resources or results. So if you're selling resources, you're commoditizing yourself. If you're selling results, then you're selling on the value side. And it's interesting that you talk about this idea of how buyers think, as you know, my co-author, the same side selling Jack Quarles, a guy who spent two decades in purchasing and procurement. And so the joke with Jack is I always say, look, to Jack, I'd mentioned to him, I know how you procurement people think and half the time that you put something out to bid, you already have a preferred vendor. And, and most people think that's true. And Jack says, it's not true. He said, in fact, 100% of the time we have a preferred vendor. And if you don't know who it is, it's not you. Right. So there's always at any stage of the process a preferred vendor. And, and I love the way you, you touch on this in terms of people realizing that, look, you got to look at those quadrants and understand that if you have something that has low supply risk and low impact, you've pretty much just commoditized yourself. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, it's, you can always, if you, get, if you think about differentiation, there's always, a, you know, I always kid people about uh, you can differentiate anything the product, you know, the product or service, the company, you know, and most often you, the best person you can, uh, you can differentiate is you yourself and the way in which you sell. And uh, so there, you know, there is, there is such a thing as a commodity, but there's always a way to uncommoditize yourself if you're, uh, if you've got the, the, the gravitas to do it. Yep. Now, one of the things that you write about in the seller's challenge, and by the way, I love the fact that at the end of each chapter, you've got checklists for how to execute things. It's something that Jack and I felt strongly about in Same Side Selling as well, of making sure people can actually put these ideas to work. But one of the things that really stood out to me is this idea of the stakeholder map, this idea of figuring out who needs to be involved. So can you talk a little bit about that concept? Sure. You know, what we did is with stake, well, we, how we define stakeholder mapping is pretty straightforward. It's a process that's designed to identify all of the key stakeholders, the users, the specialists, uh, third-party influencers, anyone who's involved in a buying and decision-making process. You know, and we look at the fact that there's generally two different types of stakeholders. Ian, there's internal stakeholders that you know most sellers are uh, are, are, are buyer. Are, most sellers uh, typically try to identify. But there's also external stakeholders, you know, and, and those are the ones that are offering guidance, support, coaching, uh, influence uh, to the internal stakeholders that often are never identified. So we think it's really important to, to spend time identifying both all of the internal stakeholders and all of the external stakeholders. Excellent. And then, and then I know that you talk about identifying different mindsets that these different people might have and how, how it's going to influence how you interact with them. Yeah, what we do is we, we try to get understand is that, you know, every sales proposal, you know, requires some type of change, right? You know, if you're trying to get people to change and, and you're really trying to do two things is, is do, are they willing to change? And then what's the urgency to change? So we've identified four different types of mindsets, you know, so for example, a threat, a focused mindset 
they've got a problem that's un- undermining their business outcomes or it's threatening their uh, impending uh, negative results. So yeah. they want change immediately. And because of that, they'll buy your product or service if you can meet their needs. Sure. Uh, you know, if you've got an opportunity focused mindset, you know, they want to improve business outcomes as well. They're open to change, but not necessarily today. They're looking at prioritization of this, this project and saying, well, we'll maybe we'll do this next year or we'll do it next quarter. Uh, it's not the sense of urgency is different. They still want to make the cha- do the change, uh, but they want to do it on their own time frame. So it's, it's usually somewhere in the, in the future. And then we walk through a couple others, the, co- the complacent focused mindset and the confident mindset. Sure. Yeah, but I, I think I think the valuable part is that so many organizations they'll either do disc profiles or you know they're getting into someone's personality and you know they're right-handed or left-handed and they're wearing lace-ups or loafers instead of look fundamentally what you have to think about is does the person think to themselves wow I got a problem that's worth solving that really needs to be solved right now or are they saying hey I want to be better at what I do or is it someone who says well. I think what we have is okay. Or do we have someone who says, man, what I have is the bee's knees. There's nothing going to be better, but you know, go ahead, demo man, show me something. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you hit the, you hit the nail on the head. Ian. when we, we talk about change drivers as being very, pretty straightforward, you know, what's the problem, the opportunity or the threat uh, that the uh, stakeholder, you know, is concerned about. And then what, you know, from there, then what's the degree of urgency? So we're, we spent a lot of time in, in our upcoming book, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what's the current situation? You know, what's the future situation or future state they're looking for? And what's the gap that's in between? And if that gap isn't big enough, if you can't drive a truck through it, it then there's really no, no, no need to, to do anything different from what they're doing today. And so they stay in status quo. The data shows that, you know, it's interesting if you look at the, CSO Insights data, they, they, uh, they published recently that 23% of forecasted opportunities, these are opportunities that you and I say to our boss, there's a funnel, these are going to close. 23% of those go to status quo. So that gives you a good idea that as sellers, they're not identifying a mindset and they're not identifying a gap between current state and future state. Uh, and if you can't develop it, if you can't identify that, you can't create a value creation. Yeah, there's there's a simple there's a simple question that we teach people to ask, which is when someone says, "Oh, here's this problem we're trying to solve." The simple question is, "Well, what happens if you don't solve it?" Right. And and either someone's going to convince you that it's worth solving, or they're going to or they're going to convince you that it's not worth your time to help them find a solution. Well, it's interesting, and I I asked the same question, and I also asked the other the follow up question is on a zero to ten scale, with ten being the highest, how important is this to you? Yep. You know, if I get a, get a number where somebody says, well, it's a, it's a five or a six or a two or a four, uh, you know, they're kicking tires. They're not really interested in solving it. You know, they're, they're looking for any excuse they can to stay in status quo. Sure. And I'll, I'll give our audience a, even a variation on that, which is, and I love that question. Sometimes what will happen is you get somebody who everything on their plate is a 10. Everything they got on their plate is a 10. So what we'll often ask them is, so compared to other things on your plate, where does this fit on the priorities on the priority list? Right. We get that. And then what, whatever answer you get, you get to follow up with really why, because why is what tells us if it's real. So if someone says, Oh, this is my top priority. Why? Well, I mean, I'm talking to you guys right now. So that's not a good enough reason. If they say, Oh, because if we don't get this done by, by September 3rd, 
that I'm going to be out of a job and our whole business is going to tank, that guy's serious. If it's, well, you know, um, I just thought would like to get it done. He or she isn't that serious. Right. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, I, I love this. And, and, and the book's got so many of these different little scripts and different tactics that people can apply, which I love because it's not a lot of fluff. It's one of these things where if, if people, if people pick up the seller's challenge, which I encourage them to do, you're going to see that, look, this is actually actionable stuff you can put into work. And really, um, really gives you some some great tools. The um, there, there's something that you wrote about in the book that really caught my attention. I'm hoping we can we can um, touch on, which is you've got ten reasons sales calls fail, as well as the biggest sales skill that gets overlooked. So if you can weave those together, I, I think it'd be really helpful for our audience. Yeah, I, I um, I'm trying to think back. It's been so long since I looked at that, Ian. I'm trying to think about uh, all the things that we said. But, you know, I think one of the biggest reasons that sales calls, you know, fail is lack of planning. And I know that sounds sounds crazy, but, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, if you if you really get to the core of it, the more people, the more successful people are in sales, I think that what happens is they, they, they take up a tendency uh, to plan, you know, much less than they should on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's the number one reason that I see uh, people, you know, fail to make quota. Well, uh, your, mem- your memory is great because that's the biggest thing that caught my attention was lack of planning. It's so often where I'll talk to teams and someone says, oh, we got this, we got this big call coming up on, on uh, Tuesday. And I go, okay, great. So what's your goal for that meeting? Well, right. I mean, we'd like to get the sale. Okay, let's, let's assume that's a good goal. So what 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 are the three things that need to happen for you to realize that goal? And what are the three things that could happen that would prevent you from hitting that goal? And you get this blank look. And I go, so you realize that if, for example, you were a surgeon and you were about to go into a procedure, the surgical team talks through everything that they're planning to do and what could go wrong and how they're going to deal with those things when they go wrong. And that's how, if we, God forbid, have to have surgery, there's a pretty good chance that we're going to be alive at the end of it. And too often in sales, it's like, well, I'm just going to rely on my good looks and charm to wing my way through this thing and it's all going to work out. And that movie usually doesn't end well. Right. Yeah, I think the other thing is a failure to not only just plan Ian, but I think it's to really um, – orchestrate and, and think through the types of questions that you want that are going to elicit for you the quality and the quantity of information that you want, you know, together. Uh, I think that's another important point, and that's part of that planning process. You know, listening is, a, is, a, is another skill that is um, taken for granted. I mean, if you look at most sellers, if they're going to set the college, most of them took a speech course. Uh, but I can't ever remember uh, ever being offered a, a course in listening. And uh, and yet listening is one of the most important skills that you can have in a sales call. And a reason why, you know, many calls fail is because people hear what they want to hear. They have what they call happy ears. They hear what they want to hear, uh, but they're not really listening attentively to what the buyer is telling them. Absolutely. And, and let's face it, it's frustrating for the buyer when the buyer says something and the seller gives it no airtime whatsoever. So the buyer thinks to themselves, look, so one of the things we're concerned about is how well you've executed for other logistics companies like us. 
And the salesperson's next question is, so how do we get procurement involved? Right. And the, and the, the, the buyer is saying, no, 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 I just raised something I'm concerned about. And you just totally ignored it, you loser. Yeah, I, you know, and I think, again, that's part of that. Part of that the reason I think sellers do this, um, Ian, is that they don't plan for the call. Uh, yeah. And I really keep coming back. I don't know if you know James Mayer, um, who wrote The Perfect Close, but James and I are on, wrote the forward for the Sellers Challenge, and he and I are on, on, on the same wavelength with this, that um, the lack of planning is one of the main reasons why I think that we have um, the percentage of, of rep, sales reps that make quota uh, consistently, you know, in the low numbers, you know, in that, that 50 to yeah. 60% range. Um, which is an abysmal number and a number that's, that stayed, frankly, pretty constant over the last several years. Uh, if you look at uh, at the different data so- sources that have been published. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's in, and I, I agree with you completely. It's the, it's, it's one of the most common things that, that I see as well is the notion of there's two things, two things that I think really cripple teams. The first is lack of planning. And the second is, a lack of practice because they, they don't practice or rehearse to which I jokingly say, okay, well then I, you know, gee, cause it's embarrassing. You know, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing if I role play with one of my colleagues and my question is always, okay, so you'd rather mess up when it really counts right. for the customer or would you rather mess up when it's one of your colleagues where it doesn't actually cost you any money if you're wrong, like right. you're make mistakes and it's okay but better to practice when it doesn't count so that you can execute when it does count. Oh boy. You just, you just hit You just hit a home run with me. That uh, that's, that's a point that I emphasize over and over and over, you know, that role playing in a safe environment is so critical um, to not only, not only to improve yourself and the way you, the confidence it gives you and be able to answer, answer critical questions or uh but it also gives you insight into what other best practices that other people are using that ups your game uh, and why, why we don't have more salespeople practicing in a safe environment like that uh, is beyond me. But it's one of the things we stress all the time, whenever we do a workshop, you know, for a client. Yeah, it's funny. We, we created a game a couple of years ago called Same Side Improv, and it's all about people role playing live customer situations. And, um, and, and the folks at GPS Insight, who um, Ryan there is the one who said, oh, you should have Tom on your podcast, Ian, and, and connected us. These guys role play every single week. And guess what? They role play for an hour a week, every single week. And, and I ask or the organizations, I say, so, you know, what percentage of the weeks do you think they actually practice an hour a week? And most companies will say things like, well, probably 50%, 70%, 60%. Nope, 100% because they know that as soon as they don't do it one week, yep. they have an excuse to not do it the next week and the following week. But if they actually execute this every single week, then they end up with better results. And in their case, it was, gee, they had one of, one of their business units, 20% of the team was hitting their numbers. A year later, over 95% was hitting their numbers. Well, it's, it's not, I mean, candidly, they implemented and executed same side selling. They could have implemented the buyer's challenge. They could have implemented Sandler. It doesn't matter what they implemented. The bottom line is they were all in with whatever system they believed in. 
and they executed it and they practiced every single week. And that's how they achieve success. And guess what? They're in an incredibly competitive environment, yet they're able to sell on value instead of price. And it's something that's an important lesson for a lot of teams, which is it's the discipline. I don't know how much you see this. It's the discipline, the people who are the great executors who actually have the discipline to follow through with something. Those are the ones who move the needle. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I call it rigor and, and discipline uh, around execution, you know, and uh, it starts with the preparation, but then you've got to have the rigor and the discipline to, uh, to do it in a routine basis. It's got to be, it's got to be a cadence there and people have got to know this is what we do and what, and what gets, I, what I've experienced, and I'd be curious to see what you hear, what you've had to say, what I've experienced is that once people get in the mode of doing this, they love it. Oh, and, absolutely. And they look forward to it and um, it becomes highly competitive and, uh, and it's an enjoyable activity. Um, and so I, I've, I don't understand why more sales leaders don't do it, Don't take the time to do it. Um, I'll, give, I'll give you a quick story. I'll give you a quick story that just always makes me smile when I think of this. So there was an organization, we, we left them with this idea of same side improv to do every week. And so I checked in with one of their executives and I said, well, how are things going? He says, you know, our team is really doing great and our numbers are up. I mean, we're, we're already up 20% quarter over quarter and man, we're really seeing great results, but, but I'm not so sure about this, this weekly role play and this same side improv stuff. And I said, why is that? He said, well, I mean, they tell me they're doing it every week, but like when I walk by, when they're doing it, they're just all laughing and smiling. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I said to my, I'm just, you know, to myself, I'm thinking, you, you don't get it. Like they're doing this. They're actually having fun. They're building their skills. It doesn't have to be miserable. They could actually have a good time and develop their skills. So I just thought it was funny where they couldn't, they didn't draw the connection between yes, we're reinforcing these skills and they're having a good time and we're getting better results. It was almost like, well, we're getting much better results, but it can't be because of that because they're having too much fun. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm real big on, on the, on this reinforcement part, part of whatever we train people on Ian, um, whether it's things from the book or or the workshops we do, um, it's gotta be fun. It's gotta be enjoyable. It's gotta be pertinent. Um, but it's gotta be rep. It's gotta have some repetition to it, some cadence. And if you don't have that on a continual basis, you're not going to get the results that you want. You know, the forgetting curve shows us that, you know, all the learning that any of us do, drops right off precipitously after about day three, after you and I, you know, leave the organization or leave the, yep. leave the training center. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's some constant reinforcement. You know, it's got to become part of this, what I call the sales DNA of the individual. It just, it's the way in which we do things on a daily basis, you know, to make our people more successful. And I, and like I said, like, and, you, and you've seen it, people love it. They enjoy it. This is not, this is not putting somebody in the penalty box. This is this is making work fun and enjoyable, and the end result is the numbers go up out of sight. Absolutely, it's it's the reason. It's it's funny. I think I'm one of the few people who does this. When I deliver a keynote address, I include sixty days of follow up with them and reminders and videos and different tools. And people say, "Well, but it's just a keynote. Why do you do that?" I said, "Because my focus is." What can they measure six months from now? And if they don't get any reinforcement, they're not going to measure anything. Right. But if they can measure something, it's going to be amazing. Hey, Tom, your insight in this stuff is amazing. You and I, I believe we're separated at birth. We just don't know it because um, we certainly share a common view of a lot of this. 
And when the, when your next book comes out, we'll definitely have you back. What's the best way for people to connect with you and learn more about what you're doing? I think uh, uh, LinkedIn is a, is a good way to start. They can also go to our, uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, they can also go to uh, our website if they want to, any one of the above. Uh, LinkedIn is probably a great place to start. I love to connect with people and, uh, and have conversations. And uh, it doesn't have to generate any business. It's just fun to have conversations with people uh, and learn what people are doing. Fantastic. And we will have all that information in the show notes. So thanks, Tom, for sharing your wisdom. Thanks very much for having me on the show, Ian. I enjoyed it. You betcha. Tom shared some great info. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information you can use and apply to your business right away. Remember, when it comes to stakeholders, you have internal and external ones, and 23% of forecasted opportunities end up losing to the status quo, which means you forecasted it and it lost to a non-decision. We need to do a better job of qualifying. The biggest reason deals fail is because of lack of planning. So you want to think about the questions you want to ask and have answered in your meetings. And remember to work on those listening skills and practice. Tools like Same Side Improv can help you do that. Remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a topic I should cover, a guest I should have on the show, just drop me a note to ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace especially your customer. Bye now.